This is the Strike Mash Boil podcast, presented by the Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club. This week is Lodo 101 with the Dock and Switzer. Uh, welcome back to Strike Mash Boil. I'm Marco, president of Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Phil. And with us on today's episode, we've got, returning again, the doc, uh, Nick, uh, who's our national BJCP certified judge, and uh, Switzer. Hey, guys. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having us. Hey, so Marco, uh, you know, our new podcast host is Anchor.fm. And they've got a really, really cool feature out on the main webpage for us, which is anchor.fm slash strike dash mash dash boil, where you can leave a voicemail for us. So forget leaving us comments in, in all your apps, which still do that. But I think it'd be really cool if we got some of our, our longtime listeners to, to leave us a voice message. Tell us what they really think about the show and ask us some questions. So you mean when we do our mean tweets episode, like we'll, we'll do that again. Yeah. Rather than us reading Bob does beer things shitting on us, we can actually listen to him shit on us. Absolutely. Yeah. Perfect. I, I love that idea. I think that's great. So I, I think folks like Bob does beer things can leave us a message. I'd love to hear what you got to say. Yeah. So for those of you listening out there, if you want us to leave us a message and it doesn't have to be on the mean tweets episode at the end, but if you do have a question about any of the segments that we have done, or if you have any thoughts or opinions on some of the topics we've discussed, go out to anchor.fm slash strike dash mash dash boil and leave us a message. You can also get there from all of our social links. We've got one of those link tree things. So go uh, leave us a message. All right. This week, to kick things off, we are going to make some bold predictions. What the major trends in beer in 2022. And at the end of the year, early next year, we're going to come back, same group of four of us, and we're going to see which ones of us were right, wrong, and maybe kind of right or kind of wrong. So major trends in brewing. What's your prediction? Nick, you're up first. What do you think? Yeah, I'm going to go the safe route. We already saw some of these trends happening in 2021, but I think we're just going to see more growth in them in 2022. So I have two. The first is sort of the rise of the craft lager. We see a lot of these breweries that, um, you know, they still brew the traditional hazy IPA, their traditional kettle sour, maybe pastry stout. But they're now starting to expand into sort of loggers, lager territory, and, and your your sort of traditional German Czech loggers. You know, the, the ones that come to mind right off the top of my head are sort of the local ones in Massachusetts, Treehouse and Trillium, which are, you know, they're known for their, their hazy IPAs. They're now starting to brew a lot of these loggers and starting to kind of explore that a little bit. In addition, you have breweries that are really becoming really hot right now, like Notch and, and Schilling, which, you know, we've talked ad nauseum on this podcast about that really specialize in, in lagers. So I think we're going to continue to see that, um, you know, 2022 is rise of the crispy boys, as I like to think of it. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it because uh, I think uh, I have my hat in that ring. The other one that's sort of maybe on the opposite spectrum is sort of rise or continue to rise of non-alcoholic beers. Uh, you know, we saw some of this last year, especially during the pandemic. Uh, a lot of breweries are sort of kind of moving towards that and 
there's you know there's this sort of health conscious side of, of, of America people trying to be more healthy and that includes cutting down on, on alcohol a little bit and you know as technology has improved non-alcoholic beers have really improved in the in the quality you're starting to see these craft breweries producing non-alcoholic beers that are much higher quality than something like Odul's or, or really those cheap ones and while you know I think there's been mixed reviews especially amongst some of us who've had some of these uh, non-alcoholic beers from these craft breweries, it's still, it's it's pretty interesting, and I think you're going to see a lot more of it uh, uh, in 2022. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, oh, I think I've started to see, I think it's in New York City, they have like basically non-alcoholic bars now where you can go and no, there's no alcohol being served. Uh, so I think that the non I think the younger generation is definitely consuming less alcohol. Thankfully, our generation is drinking enough for both at the <laughs> moment. Uh, but yeah, it certainly seems like the younger generations are, are, you know, at least out of the gate, drinking less alcohol. But when you talk about uh, the continued expansion and growth of craft lagers, do you think there's the American twist and innovation to these things, or do you think it's just traditional? What to expect loggers that just keep popping up in more places or is somebody going to start tweaking them like we saw with IPAs? I think it's hard. I mean, we've seen some of it before. Trillium notoriously has a Kolsch, and I'm using the quotation marks, that tastes nothing like a Kolsch. It's just, um, it's it's like a light IPA. Is that Sprang, right? That one? Yeah, Sprang, or Sprang, 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 whatever it's called. Um, Wrong. They call it a Kolsch. I mean, it's not even the ballpark It's Kolsch. literally an IPA. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the problem with like experimenting with traditional styles is it's no longer that traditional style, and it just becomes like an IPA. I mean, I'd be shocked if they're going to mess too much with it. I mean, obviously, something like Treehouse, which has done a number of lagers, I've, I've had most of them, and all of them sort of slant a little bit hoppier than you would traditionally. Um, which is fine, you know. They're that's what they're known for, and I think that's great that they're sort of experiment a little bit. But there's only so far you can experiment where it just becomes a completely different style, in my opinion. Do you think part of it is the sexiness of the lucor faucets on social mm-hmm. media and and that sort of thing, like trying to keep up with the other brewery that happens to have the big fancy Czech faucet? I'd buy stock in lucor right now. There's going to be a lucor tap <laughs> in every single brewery in America. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with Mike. Uh, I, I think that definitely helps those Instagram posts with those faucets and and, and the pours and the what, what's the foam pour called? Um, Lico pour. Lico pour. That's that's pretty hot and sexy right now. But you know the the taste of the beer too. I mean, I think you're seeing a lot of burnt out of people with hazy IPAs and pastry stouts. They're looking for something a little bit cleaner and, and crisper. And I think we're going to see more of that in 2022. I think homebrewing, uh, tr- you know, historically has been a predictor of trends in craft beer. And I believe on this podcast, we had a Rice Krispie Treat lager uh, that we judged or whatever. So, I, so I'm thinking that there could be some of that that happens in the craft beer industry. Absolutely. Let's hope not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Up next, uh, Marco, you pulled the second straw. Yeah, awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah. For me, my uh, prediction is what we've seen in, in craft beer. I'd say, oh God, the last twenty years is just tremendous growth. And there's been a lot of talk for you know the last five or so years on whether or not the craft uh, bubble will burst. 
And I don't know if it's poised to burst in 2022, uh, but I think we've seen the, you know, a steady decline and in increase. So we, we've been seeing increases and the increases have just not gotten as steep over the last few years. But there's still tremendous amounts of breweries that are opening across the United States. Uh, COVID kind of shook things up a little bit. But an interesting trend that's happened over the last couple of years, and I think will continue and, and probably a faster pace, is uh, craft beer drinkers either diversifying their alcohol portfolio to include bourbon or making a switch to bourbon entirely. And I think we're going to see more of that. Uh, those that listen to this podcast that are bourbon drinkers probably have noticed, you know, last year and the year before, massive amounts of uh, increases for demand in, in bourbon and in, in significant increases on the availability of different uh, bourbons uh, on shelves, new craft distilleries uh, jumping into the game. Uh, this feels a lot like it felt 10 years ago in the craft beer industry where there was just this explosion of uh, availability and diversity in um, what was available. And demand. I, I remember some of the coveted, like, you know, Buffalo Trace bourbons right now seek such demand. And it reminds me of some of the big hitter beers, Bourbon Counties, KBBSs, KBS, CBS. Like, it, it just feels so familiar that I think we'll continue to see this huge trend. And I think it's being driven by craft beer drinkers uh, jumping into bourbon. And I think they have a limited budget. I don't think that they're going to add bourbon to what they're currently do, drinking and, and buying the same amount of bourbon that they've always been buying. And now, uh, sorry, the same amount of beer that they've always been buying and now just adding bourbon to it. I think they're going to start splitting that budget, which I think will have an adverse impact on the craft beer industry. And we'll start to either see a plateau in craft beer. Uh, and potentially a decline. And I, I predict that in the next, I'll predict a decline in the next five years. But I think in 2022, we'll really start to see that hill start to flatten a lot. And we won't see as much uh, craft beer growth. It's an interesting prediction. I mean, at, especially with the prices of bourbon these days. I mean, you can't afford everything, right? You can't go out and buy a $100 bottle of bourbon and then turn around and buy four packs of $27 um, milkshake fruited sours. Totally. Maybe it's done well, to I think uh, legalize that's part home of, distilling. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy to do too. That's that's the thing, <laughs> okay, right? Yeah. So you won't see as many people trying to do it themselves, although there are plenty that will try. Um, but I think that's part of why we're seeing these ridiculous prices in bourbon too, because some of these $100 bourbons three or four years ago were $25. You know, it's uh, and it, it's being driven by you know, I've heard some of the old school bourbon guys talking about um, craft, the craft beer drinkers that are making the switch that they're graduating to bourbon. I've I've heard that uh, you know said a bunch of times, and I don't think that that's really the case. I think there's a place for both, but but I do think that there's just more and more people that are those chases chasers of of great beers that have been introduced to bourbon that in a lot of ways have some similar characteristics, especially. You know, New England IPAs drinkers that like sweet uh, dessert type drinks. Bourbon offers that in a lot of ways that are making that that jump over. I bet you see a lot of the same people that are you know lining up for rare beers and release days, you know, wanting to get that rare bottle of bourbon to share with friends and brag about and kind of get props for it too. So, 
This happened. This literally is already happening. This literally happened on Sunday. Um, (laughs) Julio's in Westboro had what's called their hold card day. And it's not even for the rarest shit. It's just leftover stuff, cellared stuff, uh, allocated bourbons that they haven't sold through the season that they uh, hang on to. They have this day. And people started getting in line hours before they opened for a chance to turn in one of these cards and walk through a line and pick a single bottle that they don't even know what's going <laughs> to be there. And they're lining up for it. Yep. That's crazy. You didn't go, Marco? Nope. <laughs> no, no. My days of waiting in line for shit is long gone. Like that, That's not for me anymore. Yeah, I would, I would expand just like real briefly on what you said. I think you're going to see it, not just bourbon, but like other whiskeys as well. I think you're going to see it in Scotch, Irish whiskey, even Japanese whiskey. You're going to see expansion of growth there as well because it, naturally, you know, you try bourbon and then you try Scotch and you, know, you just kind of you go through that, that, whole, that whole thing and they all have different flavor profiles and there's already a bunch of hype for certain scotches not as much as bourbon here in this country um mostly due to like i think probably the price tag bourbon is unbelievably cheap you can get a 20 dollar bottle of bourbon that's amazing uh and it's really hard to compare to like you know a 20 dollar hazy ipa from some brewery so yeah and, and um there's been a lot of other distilled products that have benefited from that trend too like you know i can't think of Anytime recently that I've seen so much variety in tequila. I mean, it's ridiculous how much tequila is out there or rums, like how many freaking rums that you can get. Tons of gin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. My, my brother works um, at a liquor store and he um, often you know shares with me some data on sales trends in different alcohols. And there's tremendous growth in all of them. But the one distilled product that's lagging behind everybody else is gin for whatever reason. Like gin just hasn't caught fire as much as tequila, rum, and bourbon has and and scotch. It's so seasonal too. You know, you're not drinking a lot of gin and tonics in the winter. You don't really sip gin either, right? I think that probably plays into it. Maybe that's a sign that you're a raging alcoholic (laughs) is if you're just drinking straight gin. I, some people do. I think sure. a lot of the, the English. So yeah, wait, really? I think with so, nothing yeah. in it, Phil. No, Phil Martini, raised his man. hand. For, I, I, I'm forgetting yeah. that people are listening, and I'm like, really? Phil raised his hand that he just drinks uh, straight yeah, gin. I'll I, drink gin straight. Yeah. Uh, you know, for me, it was. Um, uh, I I went to Scotland a couple of years ago, and yes, I dove into Scotch hard, and <clears throat> but you go into these Scotch bars. And not only do they have 400 scotches on a list, uh, they also give you a menu of like 150 or 200 gins. And these are all of the scotch distilleries, for the most part, that don't have scotch yet. They've, they've distilled it. It's sitting in barrels, and they're waiting the, you know, it's three years in a day legally for scotch, but nobody releases a three-year-old scotch. So they're, you know, what do you do to make money? You make gin. And some of these gins are spectacular, and their gin menus read like uh, a beer menu or a scotch menu, you know, light and fruity, deep and piney, so on and so forth. And so my wife was uh, is big into the, you know, not brown spirits, but so we tried gin. So for every scotch I had, we would also get a gin. And we went through the book and started keeping a list. We probably tried 20 of them. And yeah, I'm hooked. I love it. It's great stuff. It's oh, awesome. Now, um, I want I, we we don't want to take too much time on this, and and we do yeah. have a um, 
uh, an upcoming recording that we're doing with Amongst the Whiskey uh, that we're going to talk a lot about bourbon and and uh, my buddy Nick that um, you know is Amongst the Whiskey. It's his channel. Um, he's a bourbon guy that jumped into bourbon not from craft beer. So I, I'm, I'm going to love to have this conversation with him and get his perspective uh, while we're sipping on, on some bourbons. That's going to be an awesome recording uh, when we do that one. But but let's and, save let's save some more of this yeah. diving into it because we got two more folks that we want to hear yeah. what your predictions are. So my prediction's kind of going along with uh, Nick's a little bit in that not necessarily lagers or, or non-alcoholic, um, though I'm kind of leaning that way. My prediction is we're going to continue to see a growth in session beers and in other traditional styles, specifically uh, bitters, milds, browns, porters, those styles of beer. And I think it's kind of going in the same route as why lager and non-alcoholic, especially the the session beer. Uh, Folks are looking for something a little lighter, uh, especially in the summertime. They don't want to be drinking a 10% beer. Uh, Session beers, um, you know, let you go the whole afternoon, uh, you know, through the baseball game or the football game. Uh, But then I think folks are starting to want to... uh, they're starting to get adventurous and, and go out and experience other beer styles. And when I, I've started going out into some um, breweries that I've never, I haven't been to before recently. Um, so I've been to Fox Farm recently. Uh, we did, uh, our, I went to Backbeat out in Beverly recently. And there's uh, some others up in Maine that I've been to. And I have seen a lot of bitter. I've seen a lot of milds. I've seen cask beers. I've seen browns and porters. Um, hell, Bissell Brothers made a bitter last year that we tried here on the show. Uh, so I think that's going to start making a bit of a comeback, uh, you know, here this year. Um, maybe not to the extent that uh, what you guys are talking about, but I think we're going to start seeing some more diversity on the the beer lists, and maybe it'll be like. When you're in Scotland, you get a, a dram of scotch and a pint of bitter, and you you know that's your afternoon drink. Well, get yourself a, a shot of bourbon and, and grab a, a local-made brown ale and, and sit back and watch the game. That's my prediction. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if it's less about session beers and just more about some of those alternative styles that people are just being turned on to. Because the session Maybe. beer thing, like... Is, seems to have caught on a ton over the last couple of years uh, since the introduction of um, you know Berliner Weisses really starting to take off when people started fruiting them like crazy, and then um, you know the fruited sours that are like all fruit and a little bit of beer. Uh, so it seems like that that trend is you know just lower alcohol has been yeah. catching on for a little bit. But I think you're right with some of those alternative styles. In those styles, traditionally, you know, as English beer, beers, you know, people know I love my English beer, so that should not come as a surprise. But they're traditionally lower alcohol beers, you know, two and a half to to five percent beers. I think that's the main trend. Be- it, it goes well too with the non-alcoholic trend because I know people that yeah. you know they don't just sit down and drink all non-alcoholic beers. They'll sit down, they'll have a regular beer, and instead of having a water in between, they'll throw in a non-alcoholic beer and just to mm-hmm. kind of extend that session. In the same vein. I think the biggest yeah. challenge with those styles is the fact that many people would argue 
they're best tasted off of a cask. And that can be really challenging if you're just mm-hmm. buying them and drinking them at home or even at a bar that doesn't have a cask system. So yeah, I think it's a good prediction, but that, that'd be my worry. I think you need something... And maybe, you you know, similar to what they did with, like, well, the Czech beers and the special faucets, they could do something similar where you have these breweries yeah. and, and bars, you know, showing off their awesome beer engines and, you know, hitting yeah. them up on Instagram and getting them to look, like, super sexy. Well, and there's a brewery out in uh, Seattle. We've talked beer and bag here on mm-hmm. the show in that it's a big thing in England. Well, there's a brewery out in Seattle that's doing it, and you can buy five-liter boxes of beer to go, and it's cask-style beer. So I think it's, uh, you know, it's it's growing. It's it's moving its way across the pond. You know, beer engines are sexy. We all, three of us, four of us own one um, because we think they're cool. Um, but, you know, the you were mentioning um, format, right? Cask versus whatever. Last year we had that, uh, that bitter from Bissell Brothers, and it was a nitro. And it... it it worked okay, right? Um, but it, it replicated that style. Well, Fox Farm, which is known for a lot of IPAs and, and Czech beers, but also uh, some cask beer, their mild is in a nitro can. You know, not with a mm. widget, but it's that same style that uh, Bissell Brothers did. So I think um, you know maybe we'll start to see the nitro beers make their way out into the craft world. What, wasn't there a brewery that was slated to open in new hampshire that was going to be all cask beer i don't know mm. backbeat had five casks uh four or five casks it. on when i was there on Saturday, i thought i remember an announcement it was a husband and wife man i like it's so vague and i don't know if it ever opened and, and covid could have certainly put a damper on it um it was maybe a year and a half ago a year ago that i read an article that they were going to open a brewery that stri- that strictly focused on British ales. Mm. That's like a terrible business plan. (laughs) Yeah. That's, you know, at the time, that's literally what I said. I'm like, are these people trying to fail? Like, what are they doing? (laughs) I I hate to say it, but it's not a great business plan. But I'll have to uh, ask some of the guys at Nerox and see what they say. Let's get Switzer's take on uh, his prediction for 2022. All right. Well, my my prediction dovetails in pretty well with what you guys have all been saying. And I'm going to go specific on uh, two styles, Kolsch and Altbeer. So a lot more love for, for Köln and Dusseldorf. They, are, they fall really nicely into the, kind of that session beer trend, that traditional trend. I think that uh, you'll see a lot of breweries uh, falling in love and buying those Stange glasses. And uh, it's just something that, that are fun to drink from and kind of have, a, have that session experience with a group of friends. Yeah, the so big, I, what is it? The tray? It's called a Kranz. Is yeah, that it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, get a tray with... Uh, how many are on a, uh-huh. on a Kranz? I don't remember. Is it 12? 10 or 12? <laughs> They're not <Yeah>. enough. <laughs> no, never. <laughs> and they just keep coming. But I think that, that, you know, that plays well into kind of that traditional thing. You know, traditional British beer, traditional lagers. I think IPAs are not going away. But as more people go to breweries to sit down and, and socialize and uh, drink on premise, those are great ways to kind of draw a crowd. You know, it's something unique that you can do, at least unique for the time being, until everybody does it. But having that lucre tap, having a cask, you know, having traditional glassware, um, I think that's a trend that you'll see a lot of breweries picking up on because they'll see the, su- the success from places like Notch you know, that are really leaning into that and always have. 
Yeah, well, when we went to Kolsch night at Notch, yeah. I mean, if more places do that, then I'm all for it. Let's we go. We were there on a Monday night. <laughs> I know. Let's yeah. go. Like, it was packed, and we had such an awesome time. And, I, like, I could drink Kolsch all night, any night of the week. I mean, it was so great. Yep. All right. Those are our predictions. So, Nick, just a recap. Uh, Nick predicts more lagers and non-alcoholic beer. Or uh, Yeah. Marco is predicting... Uh, the leap to uh, craft bourbons and just bourbons in general impacting beer sales. I'm predicting more bitters, milds, brown ales, and session beers. And Switzer is going to predict more Kolsch and alt beer. So we'll regroup at the end of the year, early next year, and see who did the best in their predictions. Thanks, guys. Uh, we're going to jump into a judging session now, and we will be back shortly to talk about our main topic. If you like what you've been hearing on our show, hit that subscribe or follow button on your podcast service. And if you have any ideas or feedback for us, leave us a review or shoot us a DM on Instagram at StrikeMashBoil. Or join the conversation in our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash MVHBC. Time for this week's beer review. Each week, we're going to review a beer submitted to us by a member of the Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club or from one of our listeners. Our judge is going to walk through the judging process as if this were a homebrew competition, and all they know is the category of the beer, which this week is 17D English Barley Wine. I don't know. Marco, have we had barley an English barley wine on the show before? I don't, I don't, think, I don't think we've had a barley wine at all that we've judged to yeah. this point. Yeah, and English barley wines are. Um, I think if I had to pick between English and American, I'm I'm more of an English barley wine fan. I, I'm a lover of all beer. Um, however, English and American barley wine period is probably lowest on my list of preferred beer styles. And you know, for all the smoothie haze boys that are going to give me shit, I count this as a beer. I don't count those as beer. That's why I'm not saying those are the lowest on my list. <laughs> uh, so this one is the lowest beer. I'm, I'm saying an actual beer because this is real beer. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it's just, I, I don't know what it is. Like I've gotten to a point where I'm all about drinking beer, not necessarily sipping it. And yeah. I, you know, they're, they can be really heavy for me. And, um, but en enough about what I think we're, we're here to, to, hear what the doc thinks about it so so nick give us the rundown of english barley wine 17d yeah so this is the sort of the, the richest strongest of all the the english beers that you can kind of have and everyone associates this beer with you know being very alcoholic being very sweet caramely um, boozy all those great things that we enjoy for this style so again it's a showcase of sort of the the multi-richness um it's chewy and rich in body, and it has that warming alcohol. And because it's, it's a sort of an English barley wine with English yeast, you're going to get quite a bit of esters. Um, any kind of big beer, you're going to get esters, and you're usually going to get quite a bit in this kind of style. So the beer itself, right in front of us, it's a nice, really good-looking um, dark amber, maybe just amber in color. Um, it has like, looks like a nice viscosity to it, just rolling around in the glass. touch hazy, right? I mean... Is it? I don't know. It looks pretty good. I mean, it's not as, as clear as uh, we had a, um, what was that first beer we did? We, we do these uh, judging sessions in big groups. So what was the first beer we did tonight? That was a fest beer. I mean, that was like, that was like crystal clear. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, 
Yeah, I guess it's it maybe a little bit hazy. But I mean, like, it's funny when you swirl it around, you see the carbonation bubbles coming out. They're really struggling to get to the surface. So you can already tell that this is a, a pretty viscous beer. Um, the smell itself, again, a lot of rich kind of toffee, butterscotch notes, caramel, um, kind of just rich malty flavors overall. Uh, a little bit of fruit component there as well, kind of those apples and pear esters that you kind of expect for this style. Smells great, really inviting, really kind of warm. You get a little bit of the alcohol there that's kind of coming through the nose itself. Yeah, I get some, I, I get lots of fruit and toffee and the, the caramel. Yeah. It's uh, definitely a traditional run of the mill barley wine. Like, this is what you'd expect when you're smelling this beer. Yeah, I mean, this beer is all about going over the top with, you know, flavor, aroma, everything. I mean, that this is what you kind of save up for. Uh, so the taste itself, again, similar to the nose, a lot of butterscotch caramel notes, um, kind of English desserts, if you can think of them, whether it's um, treacle or... Uh, uh, Sticky toffee, what, no, sticky what the toffee hell, pudding. What the hell was that first one? Treacle, right? What Treacle is that? isn't that the, the the dark sugar? Am I crazy from England? Like, I, I actually don't know that one. T r e a c l e. Treacle. It's like uh, it's like molasses almost. But it's like a hard candy. No, no, no. It's like uh, it's like syrup, like like molasses, like yeah, uh, no, I've treacle. legit never heard of that before. Yeah. I'm looking, at, I'm, looking a, at, I'm looking at Philip because he's an English guy. He doesn't a, know this is. Is this a Great British Baking Show thing? Maybe. I don't know. I've been watching a lot of Great British Baking Show, so maybe that's what I like. <laughs> we got, uh, you know, listen. It's Nick, a great show. Nick kills me. <laughs> Nick drops something like treacle, like we're all supposed to fucking know what that is. But then we're talking about the ring hook game. You know what? He's like, I've never seen or heard of that before. Everybody on <laughs> the planet has seen or heard of that. Nick has it, but he's talking like treacle. Like, it's a, like every house has treacle in it. Phil, you've heard of uh, Lyle's Golden Syrup, right? Yeah. Okay, so we Treacle's might have some. Okay, Treacle's very similar. I think it's just darker. Anyway, hmm. interesting. <laughs> anyway, moving on about this beer. Yeah, so it, very dessert-like flavors in this beer. Um, there, there is a kind of a, a prominent bitterness that's there, which I, I really like. It kind of puts the beer in balance. Um, the finish is a little bit sweet. Um, Maybe a, a touch sweet for the style. I mean, again, this beer can finish pretty sweet just because it's such a big, boozy animal. But um, I would like that maybe pulled back a little bit. And whether that's just due to uh, fermentation, finishing too high, uh, maybe not enough bitterness. Although I think the bitterness is pretty good on it. But um, when it's that sweet, it's kind of hard to like, you know, it doesn't make you want to go back to it. So you kind of want to savor with it. Am I right about the treacle? Well, I mean, I, I, I obviously have been sitting here looking it up, but it, it basically looks like molasses. I think that's what I just said. No, no, so, yeah, so I'm saying I'm okay, agreeing exactly with you. I'm, 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 just I, I'm, I'm agreeing. So black that, treacle is another name for molasses. Okay. Um, it's fucking called so, molasses. So I'm, yeah, I'm right yeah. as always. Great. Yeah, Let's yeah. move on. <laughs> so the mouthfeel itself, uh, full bodied. It does sort of that chewiness, um, that, um, that texture to it, which is, again, what you want for this sort of style you get a little bit of that warming alcohol which is really pleasant um it kind of cuts through that sweetness a little bit but again i, I think the sweetness might be a little a little bit too much um a very minor complaint overall really well brewed beer these types of beers are really hard to brew just because big beers um you're really stressing out the yeast and when yes yeast are stressed out they put off a lot of off flavors this beer at least you know to me doesn't really have any of those i think whoever brewed it um pitched more than enough healthy yeast um, and really chuck through it really nicely. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I 
Totally agree. I think that uh, the beer for me seems probably a little bit more balanced. Um, I don't think it leans too much to the sweet side. I think it's pretty balanced. Literally three or four ounces, I'm good with that. Uh, just personal preference, but uh, it is a really well brewed beer. It's uh, pretty flawless. Yeah, it's hitting my sweet spot. I'll tell you that. I really I like it a lot, um, and I can drink more of this. Yeah, we still got to have keep, a bottle here. Coming, yeah, I, th- like I think it. you put the other bottle aside. You you hit it under That's your jacket. It. I, I will. I will. <laughs> so I I will definitely finish this thing. Yeah. Uh, overall, I think the score for this one. I mean, I'm giving this one a forty. Oh boy! Whoa! Big spender. Wow! Yeah. Somebody found uh, Nick's sweet spot. That's for sure. I I really enjoy this style, but no, I'm that's that's an objective score um, towards the beer. It's a really well brewed English barley one, and kudos to the brewer. Yeah. Awesome. Already a forty this early in season too. That's great. All right. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. You've heard us talk about them on our podcast, our local homebrew stores offering the listeners of Strike Mash Boil an awesome deal on their first order online or in person. Beer Wine Hobby at 87 Andover Street in Danvers, Massachusetts is our go-to homebrew store. They have everything you need to brew a batch of beer, wine, or cider. They have more than 100 fresh grains, all the classic and new world hop varieties in a variety of sizes, and yeast from White Labs, Y Yeast, Imperial, and Omega. So for listeners of Strike Mash Boil, use promo code MVPOD to get 10% off your first order. Go to beer-wine.com to get started. That's MVPOD. All right, guys. So for our main topic today, uh, we're joined with, by the doc in Switzer to uh, take us through a conversation over Lodo. We're, we're going to call this a uh, standard Lodo 101 uh, introduction to Lodo brewing uh, because I certainly am not a Lodo brewer. Phil's dabbled in it in a little bit. Uh, so we, we've got these guys here to, to really help us out and understand, uh, first of all, what is Lodo? When when is the best time to use it? Why use it? What beer styles does this impact? What are the benefits of it? And maybe we'll talk a little bit about whether or not it works. Uh, so, Nick, Mike, uh, thanks for uh, you know taking the time to take us through this. Love to hear all about it. And I'm gonna probably ask uh, some stupid questions and make some stupid comments like I normally do. Uh, but that's all good. That's all part of what we do here. Yeah. So, Nick, I think with Lodo, you know, it kind of comes from this side of, you know, let's define Lodo, right? Low oxygen, low dissolved oxygen brewing, right? That's the whole concept. And in brewing, most people are worried about oxygen pickup on the cold side. After you've done uh, fermentation, you know, you don't want to oxidize your IPA. But, you know, there's this thing out there that is, eh, is it real or not? And I think Lodo kind of comes from it, which is hot side aeration, so where what's hot side aeration and, and how, what are its impacts or supposed impacts? Yeah, so hot side aeration is probably something that newer brewers may have heard of and maybe they've been told that it's a myth. Uh, for some old school brewers that you know read the How to Brew by John Palmer from front to back, you would know that hot side aeration is, is mentioned in that book. And John Palmer, at the time, I don't know if he still believes it, but at the time was telling brewers to be very careful about hot side aeration um, and in particular be careful when you're draining the mash tun into the boil kettle 
not to splash the wort when the wort is at a very warm temperature. This will add uh, oxygen to the wort and you'll get some staling compounds. So basically hot side aeration is the, it's basically without going too much in the science, it's the oxidation of certain compounds in the wort, such as lipids and, and polyphenols, uh, to undesirable compounds. Um, and these undesirable compounds can lead to staling of the beer. It can lead to uh, further oxidation. You'll get a darker color of the beer. Um, some of the alcohols will break down to aldehydes and you'll get sort of this, this sweeter um, uh, oxidized form of the beer at, at, as an end product where you get sort of that uh, wet paper or cardboard uh, uh, sort of taste and, and aroma. So it's something that, you know, back in the day we were always told, you know, try and avoid it. Don't splash your hot wort into your boil kettle. Now, in, in modern times, there's quite, there's been a lot of questions about whether or not that's is a real thing or a false thing. And uh, a number of people have done experiments, especially the Brewlosophy crew, showing that it's maybe not that big of an effect, at least on a homebrew level. Maybe on a commercial level, it, it, it can be an issue, but on a, a homebrew level, maybe it's not something of a big concern. However, there's a, there's a group of people that believe that hot side aeration is very true, and it's something that needs to be addressed directly. And this is especially true for um, a lot of the, the German lager styles. So I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it over to Mike Switzer to kind of talk a little bit about Lodo and um, what that definition is and and sort of how we kind of uh, put precautions in place not to introduce oxygen into our, our hot wort. Uh, and before we go into that, that most commonly when people are experiencing hot side aeration, it's transfer of their wort from their mash tun to the kettle, right? It's they're not using a hose that's long enough or they're not piping it in or pumping it in long enough. They're just running it right out of, um, you know, their mash tun into the kettle and it's just splashing around and, and oxidizing in there. Traditionally, yes. Um, as what as Mike is going to get into, there's other forms of oxygen that can enter into the hot work that can cause issues. Um, but that's traditionally when people think of hot side aeration, that's the primary cause where, you know, you have your mash tun up on a table, you have your boil kettle two feet below it, and you're just draining your mash tun, it's just splashing in there like crazy, right? And when you do that with hot wort, you're introducing a bunch of oxygen, and you, you know, whether or not it's gonna cause an issue down the line is still up for debate that I think we'll talk to, talk about at the, at, at the end of this. But um, I will say that, and I, I don't know, if I'm stepping on Mike's toes too much here, the oxidation effect, you definitely can see it. Um, the experiments have shown that there's definitely a color change when you control for these factors that Mike's going to go into. So there's definitely oxidation that's happening. Now, whether or not it translates to the taste, we'll talk about. But I'm going to turn it over to Mike now so you can kind of go into it a little bit further. I'm going to preface this by saying that, you know, I kind of got sucked into uh, to Lodo Brewing. And I really wish it was just being careful when you're transferring the wort from the mash tun to the to the boil kettle because it is much much more than that and um, when you go deep down the rabbit hole it can turn what was a casual fun you know laissez-faire brew day into um, I don't know NASA launch mission um, I will want to give some credit first to uh, the, the German brewing group um, where I started hearing about Lodo um, a lot of the, the initial experiments um, and then along with the German Brewing Group, obviously, uh, Brian Rabe, and uh, he has spun off into the modern brew house where uh, there's a contingent of people that are very passionate about the effects of Lodo, the importance of it in their beer, um, and believe very strongly that 
you know, it's the best process to produce German lagers. Um, you know, we talked about what styles is it most important in. Um, definitely German lagers, uh, light, delicate beers. I've started applying some of the techniques to just about everything I'm brewing. Um, and we talk about the concept of, you know, cold side. Obviously, you have an IPA, you want to keep the oxygen out of that, keep it from staling, keep those hops fresh. But the idea behind Lodo is that you can achieve a lot of benefits throughout the entire process. But it's a very painstaking process because as we talk about where does oxygen get into your brewing day, it starts at the very beginning. I mean, you have oxygen in the room you're brewing in unless you've got a very sophisticated vacuum <laughs> uh, vacuum brewery with a spacesuit. So if you don't have that, then you've got to go through a lot of steps. So first, you know, talking about uh, the water that you have, um, you know, if you're just using tap water, RO water, whatever you're using, that water, when you start brewing with it, uh, contains dissolved oxygen. Uh, so the first step is removing oxygen from your brewing water. Now there's a couple ways to do that. You can um, add sugar to that water and actually dry yeast. So some people are doing it very simply. Um, there's a recipe for that you can find um, and just allowing that yeast to absorb that oxygen. Uh, use so that you're, oxygen. you're saying ferment <laughs> your... Ferment, ferment your mash water, <laughs> yes. Okay. So that's Ferment your mash water. I don't even know what that means. Yeah. That, that's a little off the wall. It's a little crazy, but people are doing it. It's very simple because, right, you're just adding two things. It doesn't require any energy. What I do is I pre-boil my water. So if you boil your water first, you're going to drive off all that oxygen. So if you bring that up to boiling and boil for five minutes, uh, by the time you're done, um, there's no oxygen in that. So once you've done that, you've removed the oxygen from the water you're using. Uh, the hey, next, Mike, before you yes, go further... Now, going back to my, like, um, freshman chemistry, mm -hmm. you can't do that, like, the night before. You have exactly. to do that right before. Because if you boil it the night before and then leave it out, oxygen is still going to permeate back in, right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So this is something you're doing at the start of your brew day. So now you've just lengthened that brew day. Uh, by the time it takes to boil that and then get it down to, um, you know, your mash-in temp. Now, I have we, an invention idea just based on this conversation. So I literally just thought it's like, like, have you guys ever seen those, um, like those wine caps that you like after you open a bottle of wine, but you yeah. don't finish it that night and you can, you put this thing in and you suck the air out. Mm -hmm. Like I imagine you pre-boiling your, uh, water the night before and putting it into this vessel that is vacuum sealed shut so that no oxygen gets in there and you can use it. Well, the that's, next day that could be your pressurized unit tank, right? That's yeah. already ready and sanitized. You move it in there. Oh wait, you're moving it. So you're, you're going to cavitate it using your pump and all that. Never mind. It's gotta yeah, be, then. yeah, it's gotta be in the vessel <laughs> yeah. that you're boiling yeah, it yeah. off. Well, no, you could, you could boil it and then put a blanket of some kind of inert gas and seal it. And then right. sit overnight, let it cool. Better have a lot of pressure on it, though, because then yeah, as true. it cools, it's going to suck in and warp yeah, and destroy exactly. oh, yeah. your unit tank. Yeah. So I tend to just do it right before <laughs> brew day <laughs> to avoid all that hassle. Uh, but so once you've boiled your water, you got to get it down to your, your mash temp. Um, and at that point, I'm adding... Um, so there are different additives, antioxidants, that you can add. Um, sodium metabisulfite is what I use. There's Brutan B, there's ascorbic acid. Um, and what those are doing is those are uh, antioxidants. So those are going to scavenge any oxygen that you get in the process. So people that are starting to do Lodo, um, I never did this, but people are, are using very expensive oxygen meters 
to kind of measure oxygen levels at every step of the process to kind of see how much they're getting. Depending on how tight your hoses are, how long your hoses are, there are certain um, there are certain hoses that are oxygen impermeable, and some of them allow oxygen ingress. So you can imagine um, how challenging it can be to completely eliminate oxygen. And we'll talk about just briefly, this is 101, uh, but kind of some of the tactics you can use to limit it. But the great thing about using sodium metal bisulfite or some of these scavengers is those are going to clean up anything that's getting in, right? So you can determine what you start with, the amount you start with, based on how you know open your system is, right? So we're talking with a, a sodium metal bisulfite. That's basically a Camden tablet. Yeah, exactly. Which exactly what it is. If you have chlorine or chloramine in your water, you should be adding one of those to your to your uh, hot liquor tank to begin with anyway to drive off your chlorine, right? Exactly. So some people were probably inadvertently, you know, using that tech, that tactic uh, before. Exactly, which is great. Um, but the goal I'm is I'm waving to, my hand over yeah, here that I was did. doing it. Yeah. <laughs> but the goal really is to kind of determine how much oxygen ingress you're getting and then to determine how much of this uh, antioxidant to use in the beginning. That's going to be kind of your safety net. Now, you, you can tighten up your system if you take a look at, at what you have. If you have a three-vessel system, if you have a single-vessel system, it's even easier. But, you know, anytime, obviously, you're transferring, it's an opportunity. Anytime you're recirculating through tubes, that's an opportunity for oxygen ingress. I put, um, I don't really have a mash cap. Some people will build a mash cap, which will sit right on top of your mash to make sure that you're not getting any oxygen from above. One thing I do is I'll underlet the mash, so or the, the water. So as I'm bringing in... Um, my strike water, I'll bring that in on the, on the inlet of my kettle. So I'll have my grain in there and then I'll have the, uh, the mash water come in from the bottom. So that kind of pushes the oxygen out and there's no splashing. Just from a process perspective, if you're brewing by yourself, there's mm-hmm. nothing more annoying than to have a giant mash tun full of water, a bucket of grain in one hand and a mash mm-hmm. paddle in the other, trying to shake these things into the, the mash tun at the same time. Just put your grain in the hot liquor tank. And then it, assuming, you know, you have a pump. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there you go. You just pump it in very gently from the bottom of your mash tun and boom. I mean, shit, I've been, I start, you ch- talked about this a couple years ago to me at a meeting and I've started doing that. It is the only way I mash in now. I've been doing this for like three years. Plus you eliminate any kind of dough balls as well. Oh my God. Never had a dough ball. Makes it really easy to mix as you're doing it. Um, And I have it set up so that I do a no sparge. So I actually almost fill my 20 gallon kettle to the top. And when I put my lid on there, I have an insulator underneath it. So I'm almost doing a mash cap like that. So that keeps it really well sealed. I also make sure that when I'm recirculating, the return tube is underneath the level of uh, water, right? So you're not getting any oxygen that way. So if you're using those lock lines that are spraying your wart, your um, mm -hmm. recirc onto your mash tun, you're introducing oxygen. Or those sparge arms or anything like that. Well, unless you... Any kind of splashing will introduce oxygen. I use a... I use a more beer sparge arm, but I'm submerging it down below the level. I used yeah. to not. And since I started doing some of this stuff with you, I've, I submerge it down below. Yeah. So you don't have to get all new equipment. There's some simple modifications you can do. And I know we'll talk a little bit about the benefits and is this real and why am I going through all this extra work? And I didn't know the first time I did it, you know, am I going to really experience anything? And there was a moment when I was mashing and recirculating when I realized that I didn't really smell the mash, 
right? Like normally when I'm brewing, you know, my wife might complain, you know, the whole house smells like beer. Um, I was not smelling that mash. And the thought is, well, if you're not, you know, smelling that mash, it means you're not volatilizing all those compounds, those aromas, the flavors, that those are remaining in the beer. Um, and, you know, as we talk a little bit more about some of the effects or the perceived effects, um, I really feel like that's kind of the proof that I needed uh, while I was going through all these steps. Because I will say it did take what was kind of a simple simple brew day and definitely made it more complicated. And it gives you one more thing to kind of worry about, think about. I mean, your, your main worry is, right, you leave a, you leave a faucet on or you leave a valve open and you flood your your basement or you know put burning ward on your foot and those are the initial fears usually but now you're worried about you know oxygen something you can't see uh getting into your into your beer but um you know we left off there with mashing underletting having that mash cap um you know you can still recirculate as long as you know you want to keep those tubing lines short. Mine are not oxygen impervable because I have not spent the money on, on the ones that are. Um, but you know, I, I had enough sodium metabisulfite that I feel like it it, it takes care of that. Um, so once you're done mashing, and I again doing that no sparge mash means that I'm not adding strike water or anything else. It kind of limits that extra step. Uh, I, I bring that into the boil kettle, and again, that was the one you know infamous area where people thought you could get hot side aeration. I just make sure that as I'm bringing it in, I'm underletting again. So just bring in the wort with your you know hose down at the very bottom of the kettle, so that maybe that first half inch gets exposed to air, and then the rest is coming in under it. So the thought at that point is that you're going to do more of a gentle boil and a shorter boil. Because if you're boiling vigorously, you can get oxygen in as well. Um, so at that point, you're doing maybe a 60, 70-minute boil uh, for a lager. Uh, some people, and you know, I still sometimes do a 90-minute just out of tradition. But doing a shorter, gentler boil where you're not getting as much evaporation loss. You know, it's funny because um, uh, conventional wisdom would tell you that the act of boiling is removing oxygen. So you'd think with a more vigorous boil, you're moving more and oxygen out, off. not risking more oxygen in. Yeah, I mean, I think the splashing itself, uh, when you have that kind of movement of the wort, um, can bring oxygen back in. I mean, you're obviously driving it off as well, but there is that moment in time when you are leaving the opportunity for that uh, oxidative reaction to happen. There's an also an idea that a really hard boil is damaging some proteins, mm -hmm. damaging some compounds that you don't want to drive off necessarily. Um, so that there's an idea that, you know, the gentle boil will kind of prevent that. Wasn't it one of the the books? God, and I don't know why I'm being so vague tonight, but I, uh, I thought that was one of the books I read that uh, suggested a vigorous boil when, when and actually said that that was a more proper way to do it. God, I wish I remembered the book now. Uh, isn't that uh, one of the recommendations to get rid of the one of the precursors? But DMS? Uh, yeah, DMS precursor, yeah. boil. That was, oh, that's yeah. yeah. what, yeah. SMS, yeah. SMS is the precursor maybe. for. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't think it's SMS. It's uh, SMM. I don't. I don't remember. S but it, it's something like that. If we only yeah. had an organic it's, chemistry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got an A but, in organic chemistry. Yeah. <laughs> but it's small flex. The vigorous boil is supposed to drive off the precursor for. Right. Well, and that was one of my fears when I started doing kind of that lower, shorter boil, 
Um, but I haven't found that in my beers or my lagers. Um, so, you know, once you, once you finish your boil, obviously you want to kind of get that down uh, cold fast. There's a thought that using uh, copper um, might increase uh, issues with oxidation uh, with, the, with the wort. So kind of avoiding copper for your chiller, uh, if you can use a stainless chiller. So you're saying we should chill it quickly. So does that mean, say, whirlpooling is probably less of a great thing? Yeah, I mean, a short whirlpool, if, if the recipe calls for it, if you're doing some late additions. Um, I have a plate chiller that's stainless, so that, that eliminates that issue. But getting it down uh, cold quick and in the fermenter as fast as you can without, you know, any opportunity for air is is important. Keep in mind, like, the Lodo process is usually geared for German lagers. I know Mike has right. talked about applying it to other styles, but traditionally... You know, German lagers is sort of the key for this sort of process. Yeah, yeah. kind of malt-heavy beers, right? Because that's what this is all about is is maintaining those malt flavors and compounds uh, and aromas even within the beer versus, um, say, what we're probably more used to in modern times, which is hops, hop flavor, mm-hmm. hop aroma, that sort of thing. We're really talking about malt flavor and aroma here. I think it does, but I think it also affects hops as well. I feel like the yeah, hops I mean, are more present and uh, prominent uh, when you use this technique. Okay. Viking Luau was Lodo, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah, and I think it, hel- it helps with stability. I mean, obviously, we'll talk about that at the end. Yeah, and Mike didn't go too much into it, but a lot of where this Lodo came from is the idea that if you had a German lager in Germany compared to having it here in the United States, there's there's a stark difference. And there's this idea that there's this it factor mm-hmm. uh, with German lagers and that like these German breweries are doing something special, which is why it's very difficult to replicate how awesome those beers are in Germany uh, compared to the United States. Even craft breweries that are trying to do lagers just don't match up with what you can get in Germany. And for a long time, people didn't know why. And so there's this idea that it largely due to Lodo and, and, and that kind of process. So now we're talking about you have your beer in your fermenter. Um, you know, hopefully you've got stainless or, or glass. Plastic could allow oxygen ingress. Um, you know, ideally you have something like a uni tank that you can seal up. Um, once you're in there, there's, you know, again, we're talking about trying to reduce the or eliminate the uh, ability for oxygen ingress down to the point where um, people that are, are doing this process will add the yeast first um, before you oxygenate the wort. Obviously, at some point, you're going to need to add oxygen for a healthy fermentation. Uh, the thought is, is that if you add pitch your yeast first, as you're oxygenating that wort, they're able to ab- absorb and uptake that um, as you're oxygenating. I don't know <laughs> how well that works or how important that is, but again, uh, call it voodoo, call it science, call it superstition, I, I do it. Um, why not? It's just a matter of doing one before the other. Um, but the people that really subscribe to this, um, and that's, I mean, that's kind of the challenge. That's the, the interesting part about it. That That's what makes it difficult is that there are so many opportunities for oxygen to get into your beer. You have to kind of be on guard at every step of the way. Um, but, you know, if you're brewing a German lager and you're going through all that work, maybe your mind is already going in that direction where you're not worried about making your brew day a little more difficult. Um, but at that point, you know, once you've, you've added your yeast, 
now they're going to take over. Um, you know, obviously the yeast are going to, to uptake that oxygen you put in there. They're going to ferment. They're going to create CO2. They're going to be driving off oxygen. Um, that's why it's great to have a uni tank there because you can spun that uni tank. And even if you just have it kind of at a set for a low pressure, uh, you're going to know that you're not going to have any oxygen coming in. That's always going to be pressurized and pushing off and off gassing. And there then, are other yeah. benefits to a pressurized fermentation, which probably is a whole nother show. But, right. I mean, you can ferment lagers a little warmer. Mm-hmm. You can limit the possibility of some off flavors. Um, you know, assuming you have the ability to do pressurized fermentation, which today with Firmzilla's being a plastic fermenter at that can hold 30 PSI for 60 bucks, it's, it's relatively easy. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know what, if you have kegs... And you can always yeah. ferment in a keg. That's kind of a it's less true. expensive. You don't have to get extra equipment. Um, but then again, you know, spunding for uh, your carbonation at the end is a great opportunity to save some money on CO2 uh, to ensure that you're not adding any oxygen. Um, and then your final step is packaging. You know, and we all, you know, anybody that's made IPAs or, or done anything knows the importance of making sure that you're not getting any oxygen when you're you know, putting that in a keg or, when you're, or if you're canning. So that's just the end state, and hopefully at the end of all that work and paranoia. Wait, wait, hold on. And effort. Mike, did you, <laughs> Mike? Did you say canning? I did say. Canning. Uh, am I the only one that? Am I like not the only one with a canner in the club? Hold on, I'm just checking. <laughs> Absolutely, canning, and then using something like tap the other cooler. two are shaking their heads at yeah. us, just so everybody and, else and rolling our eyes, and yes, shaking absolutely. our heads and rolling our eyes. I can hear that from here. Uh, can we go back to oxygenating? your wart mm-hmm. you're still doing that in this in, in you have to. yeah you need that for healthy fermentation for yeah that. so so there are people that are listening they're saying well what the fuck i just spent all this damn time getting oxygen out of the beer just to put oxygen into it uh, so the the i guess the question really is um it seems like from listening to this whole discussion that it's really all about the reaction that happens when oxygen is um, added to hot wart but once it's cooled once you've cooled it down the introduction of oxygen does not have the same reaction as what it does when it's hot yes and i'll I'll say i'll go back to the beginning and you know we said why are why are we doing this and really the, the theory is that malt has a certain flavor right there are flavor compounds in the malt that you're using to make the beer and malt really is what gives you the flavor of all those lagers you're going to add hops you're going to accentuate in different ways the yeast might add you know esters and different flavors but really preserving that beautiful malt flavor you know the honeys the biscuits the the breadiness the graininess um, the only way that you can really ensure that you're going to preserve all that flavor is by carefully avoiding oxidation throughout the entire brewing process and having done it you know obviously it's so much more work i had to change some of my equipment um you're worried about it the whole brew day but once you get your process down uh, it's not that much extra work, and I have absolutely tasted in my beers, whether I'm imagining it or not. Uh, most recently, I made that um, rice lager with that brown rice, and the fact that that brown rice at 20% of the grain bill, uh, and it's such a delicate flavor, right? You know, rice, you're boiling it and everything. I got that flavor. I could taste that brown rice at the end of the day in that beer, and I really feel like doing that Lodo process preserve that flavor so you'll get you know the honey notes and 
Weirman Pilsner, you'll get that graininess, that breadiness. And I really think that that's the value in it, is that you're getting a flavor and preserving that flavor that that you would lose otherwise. It's just so, it, it you know, brewing is just such a fascinating thing when you think about, uh, you know, me learning a little bit more about Lodo brewing and that you want to avoid oxygen as much as you can through the brewing process. You want to add oxygen when you cool the wort and are pitching yeast. Uh, but after you ferment, you want to avoid oxygen again altogether because you can run into the, you can just ruin everything that you did for it. It's just so fascinating how um, delicate a beer can be through the process and all these necessary steps to enhance flavor. Because I tried that rice lager and I, I sent you a comment to say, holy shit, like the brown rice was like so apparent and so obvious in that beer uh, that it was it was remarkable. And I'm sure, you know, if you talk to Brian Rabe, all the other contributors in uh, Modern Brewhouse and, and German Brewing uh, Facebook group, there are a lot of people that are, are much deeper into this than I am uh, that know all the signs behind it, that they're actually writing papers on it, um, you know, doing research on every step of the way. And what you'll find is that, you know, and I guess we, we will get into the controversy, but when you put that much effort and research into something like that and you've spent so much time in it and you believe in it so deeply, you can imagine there's going to be controversy and rifts and people shitting on it and saying, ah, you're wasting your time and it doesn't make any sense. And then people passionately defending it as well. And I think I find myself somewhere in the middle. You know, I feel like it improves my beers. I believe in it. Um, but I've had great lagers, obviously, and great beers that have been brewed by members that, that don't do any of these steps, that probably do the exact opposite. Um, so really, you know, it comes down to what you enjoy doing. Um, if you like, I don't know, making your life more difficult because you think you might get a 1% gain. <laughs> But I really feel like it's more than that. Um, I really think that it preserves that malt flavor, and I get a lot more out of my beers. Granted, yeah, because the the, the burning question is: is the juice worth the squeeze? Right, like yeah. the, it, you're putting in all this extra effort, and is that extra effort going to make a beer that much better than if you didn't put in that effort? And and it's funny because we have lots of examples of people that you know quite literally do the opposite people have heard dana collins mentioned on this show before and he, i think he's been on the show yep. and we yep. see videos all the time on our facebook group of him just opening up that valve on that mash ton and just warts coming out splashing he's got the slow-mo video and it's just splashing everywhere mm -hmm. and then the guy turns around and wins our competition wins our advent competition just smashes it out of the park with these beers so it it's uh uh you know it's it's basically if you can tell the difference in your process and how the beers are that you're producing and if you find that that effort you know works for you and it's worth it yeah and gotcha. I, I mean i'll just say and i guess i'll ask mike this mike you talked a little bit about you know your process and how maybe you don't do everything that's required. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, is this like an all or none effect? Do I have to do all these things? <laughs> is there one or two things that you think are really something that a brewer who's interested in this could employ in their process to kind of improve these types of beers? Well, he doesn't have the right hoses, so he's disqualified. Yeah. Like the guys, li the guys about. listening, like they're like he's out. He's like he's ruining everything by not having the right hoses. No, I mean, as you can imagine, you can you can go so far down the rabbit hole. I think I do enough. I think I do enough of the steps, and and I add enough of my oxygen scavenger scavenger that at the end of the day, I am down below you know the 
recommended parts per million of oxygen in order to, to remain low-do. Uh, but you will find people very deep in this. You know, Brian Rabe, he's you know, putting blankets of nitrogen on top of his mash tun. And he has an entirely sealed system. It looks like a, a nuclear power plant or a NASA facility. Oh, it looks like... Building a rover, yes. It really looks like he just pulled the entire compressor system off of a rocket. Yes. And is using it to brew beer. Oh, I mean, and it's I, all automated. It is 100% <laughs> yeah. automated with yes. um, valves that are, you know, computer controlled. There's, there's not a man, he could run that whole fucking thing from, you know, his orbit. couch. Right. Yeah. From orbit. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there are people that are, are going through very uh, long lengths to make sure that they don't get absolutely zero oxygen. Um, but again, you know, I, Think like anything with brewing you know you, you change you tinker um you do additional steps you research things read about things get ideas and if there's all different kinds of people that brew and i'm the kind of person where i like going down that rabbit hole i like trying all these new things and at the end of the day maybe it's a beer that's one percent better maybe it's the exact same beer that i was doing before with 50 you know, more effort but the fact that i feel like I progressed. I put in all that extra effort. I know that I did everything I possibly could to make a great beer. I think in your mind, when you drink that beer, it ends up tasting better to you. So Mike, That's what I value. One question I have, and, and I'm, I, since we started this conversation, I definitely opened a window and I'm on the modern All right. So if we're talking traditional German beers, mm-hmm. some say that you have to do a decoction for, or that style of beer and that style of brewing, especially at the homebrew level is an incredibly manual process of scooping out the mash and putting it into another vessel and bringing it to a boil and putting it back. I mean, you're just asking for oxygen pickup right. there, but I don't see anything on this website about decoction. In fact, if anything, he's, it's like they moved away from it mash. It's a, uh, it's more step mash. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I used to do decoction mashing and, you know, you talk about adding work to your brew day. Uh, that's it. You do a, uh, you know, a triple decoction for a half a Weizen <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, you add a couple hours on your brew day, but no, that was something that was, um, interesting to me as well, because you talk about traditional German brewing. And I think the idea is that, you know, it's an old technique that was for under modified malts. And I think a lot of the people that are, are pushing Lodo and doing that believe that doing decoction on modern malts that are well-modified, you're actually doing yourself self a disservice in a lot of sense. Yeah, all right. So jumping into the controversy that we've been referencing yep. is the Brewlosophy guys. Mm-hmm. They did their um, you know experiments like they normally do where they um, did Lodo brewing and did no Lodo brewing, and they couldn't tell a difference between the two beers. Now, in fairness, I don't think the Brewlosophy guys have ever told the difference in the beers that they were doing. Right. Uh, so I, I think they've <laughs> always been, it's always been inconclusive, but that's been the big controversy is they put it to the test and couldn't detect a difference. Right. Well, I don't know if I want to go on public record <laughs> on my, my feelings about Brewlosophy. We'll save that for our private uh, club page. But no, I, I think... Uh, send me a message. Yeah. I'll go public with it. Yeah. No, there, there was a, a long discussion as to you know, whether what they were doing approached you know, true Lodo and whether it was a real comparison. Um, so I'll leave it at that. There was yeah, some I mean, questions. They, <laughs> Mike, Mike is kind of alluding to the fact that they 
probably skipped a lot of the steps that are necessary. I think maybe they used like a copper immersion chiller instead of stainless steel, or maybe they didn't. They added didn't add the right doses of um, uh, sodium metabisulfite. But you know, whatever the case may be, I, I think you know. I know you guys didn't ask my opinion on this, but I'll I'm gonna put my opinion out there. Um, All right, let's hear it. <laughs> I, I think Lodo, I think it is a thing. I think there's no doubt there's oxi- there's oxidation happening in the malt when you splash the wort um, and you do all these things that we do that just introduces oxygen into hot work. I absolutely believe that's an effect. Whether or not it goes into the taste itself, I have noticed I, in my experiments sort of doing Lodo, and again, this is just an N of one, and I'm not doing, you know, a... Uh, 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 a blind, blind yeah i'm not doing triangle stu- tests <laughs> or any kind of blind study um i think there is a difference I, I i think the the malt profile comes through a little bit more which is sort of the goal when i brew these sort of german lagers um so i i do it every once in a while and i, I don't do everything um but i think even doing like a couple of these things whether it's underletting the mash whether it's adding some sodium metabisulfate um, pre-boiling the water. These are all things that I sort of employ. Um, I still use a copper immersion chiller, so I'm not perfect. Um, I'm probably introducing some oxygen. I'm sure I'll be raked across the coals for that. But regardless, mm-hmm. I think every little step, I think, can help a lot for German lagers. And um, I, I know Mike has talked about doing for other styles as well. I would caution a little bit against that, unless you're a masochist like Mike is. Mm-hmm. Um there's many styles that you kind of want that oxidation uh, that occurs, um, specifically in something like English styles, uh, even Czech styles. Um, they're fine getting a little bit of oxidation, a little bit of color into those those, those Czech lagers um, compared to German, which you want pretty, you know, uh, straw color. Uh, you want very clean uh, and, and none of those um, sweet flavors that you get in a lot of Czech beers. So... Um, but for like German lagers, if you really want to take it to the nth degree, you want to really try and capture what makes German lagers German lagers. I think it's it's a fun thing to experiment with. Um, but at the same time, I wouldn't I wouldn't go crazy about it unless you're again um, obsessed like someone like Mike Switzer is. And I, and I don't use it for all styles. I, I definitely don't use it for anything English. You know, I'll use well, it see, for you for guys IPAs are saying you don't use it for, for English. I do, really? and I I have seen. Not to um, the degree that Mike does. So I, I underlet my my uh, mash. I use uh, sodium metabisulfite in my um, strike water. I am not pre-boiling, so whatever. Boom. But I Busted. Am, it's done. Well, but I am throwing the metabisulfite in. Uh, I'm underletting. I do the general boil. I have a stainless counterflow chiller. I oxygenate after my yeast additions. I do some things. I've done the mash cap. But I have seen um, in my malt-forward British-style beers, which we'll say are milds and my Scottish export, those style beers, I have seen a, a, a difference in the quality of the malt profile by employing some of these um, methods. And, you know, I, my bitter, was it any better? Eh, eh I don't know. But my mild and my uh, Scottish export, which you guys have had uh, recently, that I followed these techniques, and I think uh, there was a difference from the previous time I brewed those. I think you have to be picky and choosy with what beer style you're doing. But also, I would say, 
how much some of these tasks, some of these, these processes, methods, whatever you want to call, how much added effort are they really doing that you can't just employ on every brew day just to get yourself in the mindset of, of brewing to this, to this point, you know, do you need a mash cap every time? Maybe not. But if you do the metabisulfite, if you do your, you know, you stainless chiller, well, you're, you're buying a piece of equipment, so you're stuck with it one way or the other. Um, pre-boiling or not, you know, that's an added step. But there are certain things you could do just every brew day that really aren't adding all that much time or effort that, you know, probably benefit every style. I think it does. It forces you to pay attention to what you're doing, right? Yeah. And if it means yeah. that you're measuring pH and controlling pH now, because hell, I'm doing all these other things, I might as well dial that in too. I think maybe it just gives you that, um, I don't know, that organization and that uh, strictness to make sure that you're, you're doing everything you want to do that you set out to do when you're making that beer. So I think there are, there are some people that started doing Lodo and maybe dialed back on some of the steps they didn't like, but at the end of the day, they wound up brewing differently. They were paying more attention and they were controlling things better and they were doing things more consistently. That's why it plays so well for loggers because those, those beers benefit from that. And I think specifically the people that are using this technique were chasing that perfect Hellas. I mean, that's what it came down to is, you know, like, like Nick, like the doc said, it's that it factor and really trying to, to bring, out, bring out that, that honey note, that, that breadiness that flavor that they remembered from being over and drinking beer in Germany that somehow gets lost I, when it's made here. I chase that honey note. I still do. Yeah. In Hellas. Oh God. You know, to, to, you know, close the loop on the brewlosophy guys, um, you know, because clearly you guys are probably getting the gist of our opinion there. If you're seeking answers on these things for them, uh, don't leave us a voicemail as you heard earlier in this message right. and we'll gladly give you the real answer to the questions that you have uh in a a brunt straightforward way do a uh, triangle test and determine whether we're wrong and you probably won't find no statistical it. significance yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but you know my my views I, and i don't think we we didn't touch on uh uh crushing grains and, and all that stuff right as part of this conversation because that's part of the we equation did it, too but we did talk about uh um, we, we've talked about it in previous episodes yeah. yeah yeah um but so you know my perspective i do think that there is a difference in lodo brewing i think that you know some of the flavors that you guys are talking about definitely enhance uh, but i'm a little bit on uh the dock side where i'm not sure I'm not convinced that the juice is worth the squeeze. And I'm, I'm of the mindset of um, that there is a point of diminishing return. And it takes some of the old um, uh, you know, business school uh, lingo. There's a point of diminishing returns in brewing. And when you're a home brewer, this is strictly from the home brewing perspective, because obviously in a large commercial scale, this is different because it it's, means money. But when you're just doing it for personal consumption, when you think about all the things that you could be doing to improve process, by the time you get to Lodo, in my opinion, all there's so much added effort for such a small jump, in my opinion, on what you're going to get for an end product that I don't know that it's worth that extra effort unless you're a perfectionist like we heard Mike Switzer talk about uh, always chasing the perfect beer. And that's different. That's that's, you know, you know, his pursuit. And I think that's fine. But for me personally. I don't see the point in a marginal 
improvement in my beer for uh, you know the amount of effort that goes into it. And that's just my opinion. Uh, you and I brewed a lager together last summer, which was a Czech Amber lager, won gold medal in a competition. We've had it judged here on the show. Um, and we use the spike basket, which by its very nature, you hang that thing on the side of the kettle and it just drains into the the kettle with all the other warts. So there's a time there where it's just draining, you know, liquid down six, eight, ten inches, just splashing all around. And that was a fine, fine lager. Yeah. That, that was great. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Nick. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't it, it's not it's not the highest rated uh Czech Amber lager we've had on this show. We we know that already. Oh, True. Jesus. And it's also you know it's also a Czech beer and I did not yeah, do Czech, Lodo for my Czech beer either. Yeah, so. Czech Czech beers can get away with a lot more. Maybe a little more rustic then. All right. Well, I think that pretty much sums it up for us. I mean, I think this was a great conversation, um, you know, to dive deeper. We've talked Lodo a bunch of times on this podcast before, uh, but this was a pretty deep dive into it. So I, I appreciate you guys taking the time. I learned a lot. Uh, got to ask a bunch of questions and, and appreciate you guys, uh, you know, informing us and, and our listeners on uh, that. It's honestly not that intimidating to do, but the reality is, uh, that it does require some additional effort. So uh, people at home, you guys take what you will from the conversation, but uh, Switzer, Doc, uh, appreciate you guys taking the time to educate us. Yeah, we'll try and drop some of the uh, some links into the show notes for this so you guys can go out and, and uh, what has become a popular phrase recently, do your own research. Um, so we'll let you go read that. And I think that's it for this week's Strike Mash Boil, and we'll see you guys next week on the show. All right, folks, we just finished up recording this episode and we were just chatting after the show and we, we uh, kind of realized that um, there were a couple topics that we missed. So we're going to take like two minutes and real quick, the big one was when you're adding a Camden tablet into your hot liquor tank, you're adding sodium or potassium or all these things into your, your uh, strike water before your mash. You better be taking account of that, right, Nick? Like that's... I never really thought of it that way. Yeah, yeah. You're adding sodium and sulfur mostly. And so it's something you have to keep in mind. And it, it depends on how much you're adding. It's usually not a lot, but it, it can affect things. And luckily online, I mean, I, I found a calculator that calculates, you know, however many grams you're adding will tell you how much parts per million of, of sulfur and sodium that you're adding to your, your mash water. So it, it's, it's really helpful and something to keep in mind. Yeah, and if you're chasing that perfect water profile uh for especially these these traditional lager styles that is something you should really pay attention to which again i just realized which is why i hit record again i'd never done it before so i think it's uh it's it's an important little note that i totally have missed my entire brewing career (laughs) and mike um you know i talked a little bit about hot side aeration and how you know hot side aeration can cause issues with beer staling. Um, I know you've had some experience um, and some thoughts about how Lodo has helped, you know, the quality of your beer over time. I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, we talked a lot about, you know, the flavors of preserves and preserving that malt and kind of chasing that it factor. But but what I found also is that just this, the stability of my beer, especially when you're doing it all the way through cold side, which is really important for stability making sure that you know when you're transferring it to a keg that you purge that keg if you're putting it in a can that you're purging the can first 
Um, that my beers, you know, some of my loggers will sit around, especially now during COVID, I'm not sharing beer as much as I did in the past, but I've been drinking beers that have been sitting in a keg for a year and maybe they're not 100% where they were. Um, they've changed a little bit, but you know, none of that oxidative qualities, none of that cardboard hops still bright. Uh, I really think that that benefit really lasts in the end and that you can store that beer a lot longer. Awesome. A couple more little tidbits from us. And now this really is the end of the show. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) The Strike Mash Boil podcast is produced by the Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club, an American Homebrewers Association sanctioned club. Follow us on Instagram at MVHBC. Join the conversation in our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash MVHBC. And check out our website at mvhbc.com. Mm-hmm.